Beaufort on the web at wagp.net. Holy Trinity, located near downtown Beaufort, is a classical Christian school committed to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, scholastic excellence, and the love of learning. They provide rigorous academics in a safe Christian setting as students are taught by qualified and dedicated Christian teachers. Holy Trinity educates students preschool age 2 through 6th grade and currently is accepting applications for the 2013-14 school year. Class sizes are small and space is limited. Additional information is available at 522-0660 or online at htccs.org. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad, as always, that you can join us for this hour. If you have a particular question or issue you're facing in your personal life that you'd like biblical counsel on, or there's a question you have as you've been studying Scripture, feel free to call us direct here at 525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877-WAGP980. A lot of people just email us here directly into the studio, and we've got a lot of emails sitting here this morning. And you can do so if you'd like, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. You know, a lot of folks are at work and they can't always listen, but they have questions that are very important to them. And so after their question is answered, and we can't answer them all, there's just too many, but I answer as many as I can, and then they're emailed back to let them know it was answered on such and such a day, and you can go online and view the Bible line at uh, either WAGP or uh, org or searchthescripture.org. Any of those uh, websites will link you back to the Bible line. You can see where your question was answered. And uh, you can listen to the whole hour if you want, or you can just kind of scan through the audio file until, oh, yeah, it's the sixth question, and you can see and just listen to your answer if that's of help to you. So, Again, uh, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or you can email us, tbl at net. Rick, we've just got a ton of questions here this morning, so let's start ticking them off, and if a live caller jumps in, we'll, we'll interrupt. Very good. Uh, Max from Portland, Maine asks, uh, is, it common, uh, is it a common belief among modern U.S. evangelicals that atheists like myself— Actually, no God exists, but we are choosing to reject God rather than follow him. I have heard this idea often enough among evangelicals with whom I've engaged over the years that I thought I should put it to an active pastor. Well, um, he's obviously listening in Portland, Maine uh, through WCBI-FM, 
and I'm glad you are listening because uh, you've emailed me, and I hope to be able to respond to your question. And yes, it is a common belief uh, amongst US, U.S. evangelicals that there is no such thing as an atheist, and you're not an atheist. You know that there's a God. The Bible says that you know there's a God on two bases. Number one, through the creation around you. You know, when you look at the watch on your arm, you don't think that by chance it just smashed together to form an ordered working timepiece. You don't think it evolved uh, to the point where it functions as it does on your wrist. No, you know, behind the design was a designer. And so scripture gives the same argument. It says in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has made so that men are without excuse. It also argues in Romans 2 that people who don't even have a Bible like Gentiles in Paul's day who didn't have the law, he said they're a law unto themselves and that they show the work of the, God, the, work of the law written in their hearts their conscience either defending or accusing them. And so people know when they do what's right, their conscience says that's good. Uh, People know when they do what's wrong, at least initially. Now, I'll put a caveat to that, that the Bible does teach someone can develop an evil conscience or a seared conscience. But with that said, people know when they do what's wrong that they are offending someone. Who is this someone they are offending or pleasing? the God who made them. So Max from Portland, your problem is not an informational problem. When you uh, meet God someday in heaven, and you will, and if you meet him there without having bowed your heart and mind to Jesus Christ, then you will regret for all of eternity that you bought into your false idea that you're an atheist. Uh, saying that there's no God doesn't make it true any more than me saying the sky's not blue and the grass isn't green. I can call it what I want. I can say what I want to say. But there is reality, and there is the reality of God's existence. That's why less than 1% of the people, of the 7 billion people on the planet, would even say that they are atheists. But um, interestingly, uh, Max, the Bible doesn't devote much time to atheism. It gives one half of one verse to the subject, and it says the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. So it's not a problem of your mind. It's a problem of your heart. And you're just like me in that by nature, we are both rebels and we do not want to submit to God by nature. And so that's the problem that we have to face in this life. And the only answer is to yield yourself to the living God and to what he has revealed in the only book he ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. Now, if you have honest questions like, well, how do we know Jesus is Lord? How do we know that claim is valid? How do we know that the Bible is true? Well, those are other questions in and of themselves. But at least shake off the uh, false garment of atheism that you're parading in and say, well, look, I know better. I know there's a God. And, And then start looking into the Christian faith to see if there's any you know, historical basis for the unique claims that it makes on your life. You're missing out. And you don't want to miss out, uh, and you don't certainly want to meet God without a Savior because your sin like mine is an incredible offense. But most of the time, Max, when I meet people who say, well, I don't believe there's a God or they're agnostic, uh, gnosis is knowledge, ob, the prefix means I don't know. I'm not saying there is. I'm not saying there there's not. Uh, well, you know... <laughs> 
most of the time when I meet people who say such things like that, or there's no heaven, or there's no hell, or I don't believe the Bible, there's a moral problem in their life. Some kind of moral issue that you're struggling with, that your conscience has been fighting you over. And so the easiest thing to do is just to deny it as all being true and uh, to dismiss it as uh, absolute truth on your life so that it makes you feel a little bit better over the guilt in your conscience. But don't do that. You don't want to do that. I promise you, you don't. All right. Um, Let's go to our next question. That's a good one, and I appreciate it. Again, the number locally, 525-1859 or toll-free, 877-WAGP-980. All right. Very good. Um, Our next question comes from Texas. Uh, This listener writes, These days, many young women who get saved have a pre-existing boyfriend that is not born again with whom they have been having premarital sex. And that boyfriend is the only person with whom they've had sex. In their minds, these women feel like they need to keep that boyfriend and the sex because they think they'll eventually legally get married. This is a very common situation due to the immorality of today's youth. What Bible verses and advice would you give to these women? I heard a recent survey that a significant portion of evangelicals believe that premarital premarital sex is okay. That doesn't make any sense if you believe that when you obviously are not a born-again Christian. I find it hard to believe that one can be a born-again Christian for very long without hearing the Bible teachings against fornication. Maybe these people are uh, are the people that God's talking about in Revelation 9.20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands nor of their fornication. Well, it's a good question. In one sense, you really answered it yourself by your assessment of people today who claim to be evangelical or born again, but continue on in a lifestyle of um, immorality. Listen, when you engage with another person physically, there's a bond that takes place. And this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 speaks about. And if you have uh, done that, it's very difficult in many a woman's mind and a man's mind to just sometimes break that off because you've created a bond between the two of you. But God's word is clear, and God will never ask you to do anything that he doesn't give you the power in which to perform. So you have passages like um, Ephesians 5, verse 3, do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints or holy ones, because that's what God has declared us to be when we receive Christ. And there must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. We live in a day in which immorality is rampant. It's all over the airwaves, all over the internet, all over the movie system. It's everywhere. And so there are choices that you need to make. And there are some things God says you shouldn't even speak about. 
You shouldn't even speak about some things, much less watch them on TV. So there are decisions that you have to make. And those decisions uh, are based on whether or not you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Is it possible for a Christian to be immoral? Well, of course. Otherwise, Paul's command makes no sense. Do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. So it's possible for a Christian to commit any kind of immoral act, premaritally, extramaritally, whatever you can think of. Uh, That's why Paul will say in Galatians 5, in the book just prior to Ephesians here, I say, walk by the Spirit that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And so when you do have a birth from above, there's a new tension a heightened tension that takes place in the life because the Spirit of God is living in you. You are a temple of the Spirit of God. And so when someone does anything wrong, uh, there's conviction. The Spirit of God is grieved. You don't grieve things, you grieve persons. And he's a person that lives within you and his heart is grieved. And your spirit in which he inhabits will be grieved when you do what's displeasing to the Lord. And so he, in very similar fashion to the letter to the Ephesians, says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, in case I missed something, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, can a Christian commit fornication or adultery? Yes. So the exhortation, walk by the Spirit so that you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. Then he lists the desires of the flesh, and he says those who practice such things. Uh, One translation paraphrases it a little bit. Those who live like this have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So if this is the pattern in my life, then I have proof positive I've never met the Lord. In fact, in the next verse, uh, two verses later, verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, Crucifixion of the flesh, it's pitiless, it's painful, it's decisive, but it happens when you meet Christ. There's a denial of self, and you pick up your cross, and you begin following him. Maybe not as consistent as you should, but there is a change of direction that takes place. And so in similar fashion, if you want in another text, 1 Corinthians 6 Verses 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but God washed you. He sanctified you. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Can a Christian commit these sins? Yes, that's the thrust of uh, the latter half of this chapter um, in v- verses 12 all the way through 20. Uh, some of the Corinthians had fallen into sexual immorality. And he reminds them that when you carry yourself into an immoral relationship, you carry the Spirit of God into that relationship with you because he indwells you. And he wants the Corinthians to consider that and ponder that. But he also makes it very clear, again, this is, if this is someone's pattern— then they probably have proof positive they've never met the living God. Because when you meet Christ, things begin to change. 
And if your life hasn't changed, you can call yourself whatever you want, born again, evangelical, but it's just chin music. It doesn't mean anything. So anyway, there's a lot more I could mention on that, um, but I have a number of messages. Um, there's a message I preached out of the book of Hebrews on um, from Hebrews chapter 13, and if you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, you will see the whole book of Hebrews uh, listed in all the sermons I did. I don't remember how many. Did. I think I did like 25 sermons in Hebrews, but if you click on the verse where it's covered, Hebrews 13, 4, um, I kind of systematically walk through the Bible on this subject of sexual immorality. In Hebrews 13, 4, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? Because fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. All right. Uh, let's go to our next question. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980 if you have a question this morning. Or email us as Scott from Seabrook has at tbl at net. Scott would like to know how many temples have been built on the Temple Mount. He's always been under the impression there were two, Solomon's Temple and Hezekiah's. But what about Herod's Temple? Was that in addition to Hezekiah's? Well, Hezekiah never built a temple, but uh, there was the Solomonic Temple, which uh, King Solomon built. David wanted to build it, if you remember, but God said, no, you're a man of bloodshed, and so I'm not going to let you do it. I'm going to let a man of peace do it. And though David supplies a lot of the material, Solomon is the one who constructs it. And it was a magnificent uh, temple that he indeed built. Uh, if you remember, because of the idolatry of the nation, uh, Solomon led it. There was the first three great kings of Israel, uh, Saul, David, Solomon. The kingdom was united. All 12 tribes were united under one king. But Solomon, because of moral compromise, his uh, heart was led away into idolatry, as was the people. But God said, I'm, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to wait until your son comes onto the throne just because of the relationship I had with your daddy, David. And so Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, or Rehoboam, if you want to pronounce it that way. And uh, he comes to the throne, listens to the younger leaders rather than the older, wiser leaders, and the kingdom ends up splitting into 10 northern tribes under Jeroboam, who becomes king, and uh, two southern tribes, Judah and and, uh, Israel. And Benjamin, and it's named after the larger of the two. Uh, Again, God sends prophets to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom. He warns them to flee their idolatry. Uh, They don't really heed it. And so God judges the 10 northern tribes that are known as Israel by the Assyrians. Uh, You would would have thought the southern tribes would have awakened to the reality that God is very much involved in the lives of his people, but they didn't. They continued on, and so God, uh, in 589 B.C., brings Nebuchadnezzar, who becomes his instrument, and Nebuchadnezzar totally decimates the Solomonic Temple. If you remember, just as the prophet Jeremiah had predicted, they would be carried away for 70 years, uh, and God didn't just pull that number out of the Air for 490 years, among other things that the Jews had done, because they were idolaters, they didn't listen to what God said, and every seven years they were to give the land a Sabbath rest. 
And God said, look, I'll provide enough in the sixth year so you'll have enough food to carry you into the seventh year. But they didn't really trust God. They didn't really believe God. And so for 490 years, they violated the the land having its rest. So God says, okay, well, you know, you're not going to give it rest like I told you. So I'm going to give it the rest that it missed. And so God gave the land 70 years of rest. At the end of the 70 years, uh, God brings the people back uh, through three uh, different leaders. And the first one is Zerubbabel. And ultimately, the temple is rebuilt. A second temple is built. And it's usually referred to as the Zerubbabel Temple. Uh, There was a number of times, again, when the place was uh, beat on and torn, not decimated, but, 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 you know, destroyed and vandalized and so forth by different peoples because of Israel's largely because of their disobedience. But it's intact and it remains. And ultimately, a man by the name of Herod, Herod is really a, a, a title, um, and there's a number of Herods that lived during the New Testament era, 11 to be specific, but there's one who's probably the most famous to us, Herod the Great. And of course, he takes the Zerubbabel temple and rebuilds it. Some like to call it a third temple, but the majority just refer to it as the second temple uh, with a facelift on it. But it is totally restored and revamped, but it never closes. And so usually it's still considered the second temple. Uh, The Lord Jesus, of course, in a word of prophecy on the um, Mount of Olives, and of course he's alive and walking on the earth in uh, in his incarnation, and he's still incarnated, but in a resurrected body. And the Herodian temple is there. And Jesus, uh, when he's questioned on one occasion, it's recorded in Luke's gospel as well as in Matthew 24 about the the temple and his return. Jesus reminds them, he gives them a short-range prophecy and then a long-range prophecy. And the short-range prophecy is not a single stone will stand upon another. Now today when you go to Israel, you can see a wall. It used to be called the Wailing Wall because that was as close as the Jews could get to um, the place where the original temple was built up above that. Uh, They usually refer to it today not as the Wailing Wall, but as the Western Wall, because, as you know, Israel ultimately retook the city of Jerusalem, and it's theirs. But still, you will see people there at the Wailing Wall uh, or the Western Wall uh, praying uh, to the Lord God, And they're asking God for his help and his guidance. And many very sincere Orthodox Jews, many of whom I think are going to find Jesus as Savior, many who have. There's actually 12 Messianic fellowships just in the city of Jerusalem right now. So it's interesting to see what God is doing. But right now it's just a remnant of Jewish people who are believers. But the temple's never been rebuilt since 70 AD when... uh, Titus Vespucian came down and that Roman general, just as Jesus predicted, totally destroyed it. Jesus said not a single rock, not a single stone would stand upon another. And so they came in and they burned it. And as it burned, uh, the gold melted and the gold melted between the rocks and to get the gold out between the rocks. They literally pried apart all the, go- all the rocks and there was not a single stone left upon another. 
So the western wall that you see today, and this is a question I'm often asked, especially when I go to Israel, oh, what, what's the deal on this wall? You know, I thought the temple was destroyed, and is this a temple wall? No, that's just the platform that uh, Herod built, and it was a real sophisticated building project. And up on top of that platform, where the Dome of the Rock is, among other things, uh, is where the uh, temple was. The temple is going to be rebuilt again, so there's going to be a third temple. And we do know that it has to be rebuilt by the time of the middle of the Great Tribulation period. In that seven-year period where there's a one-world leader known as Antichrist, in the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will go in and he will commit what the prophet Daniel predicted called the abomination of desolation. And as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, he'll make himself out to be God. I suspect that that construction, I could be wrong, but I suspect the construction for such a building, for another temple, for the third temple, will not even begin until after the rapture of the church when this world leader comes with false signs, wonders, and miracles to deceive many. And he will bring a false peace and he will accomplish what no president or political leader has been able to accomplish. He'll bring peace to the Middle East, but it will be a false peace. And I suspect it will probably be at the, maybe the very dedication of that temple that he will commit the abomination of desolation. That's the midpoint of the tribulation. And Jesus speaks of it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Uh, eventually, God's going to build another temple, a fourth temple, and it's called the Millennial Temple. And at the Millennial Temple, the Lord will uh, have his people. Just like today, uh, we remember the Lord's sacrifice through the Lord's table. People during the Millennial Reign will remember the Lord's sacrifice there in the temple through the sacrificial system. They will have no um, you know, power to do anything any more than the original temples had any power to accomplish anything in terms of the actual effectual forgiveness of sin. Uh, the, the blood of bulls and goats, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us, can never take away sin. Only the blood of Christ ultimately can. But it will be a reminder to people because during the millennium, people will need to make decisions for uh, receiving the Lord Jesus as Savior. So that's just a brief thumbnail sketch of uh, the temples. There's the Solomonic Temple. There's the Zerubbabel Temple. There's the Herodian temple, which is the Zerubbabel temple fixed up. And some call that a third temple. Most don't, but sometimes you'll hear people speak of five instead of four. There's the tribulation temple, and then there's the millennial temple. So anyway, appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. How can we help you today? Well, I was reading, um, I don't know if you've heard of the man, his name is David Burton, but he wrote a book called The Jefferson Life, basically exposing uh, the modern views that we have on Thomas Jefferson. And this question's a little more of a historical, not so much theology. I know you're not a historian, but it's like, I was just wondering if you've heard anything about that. And I was also surprised to learn that Thomas Nelson, which I know is a conservative publisher, pulled from that book and from the partnership with him because a lot of people lashed out against Thomas Nelson saying that the book had a lot of historical flaws. But, I mean, have you heard anything about that? And also, if you could comment on just 
what you think of just the modern people saying that America is not a Christian nation anymore. Because I guess there can only be one true history, so it seems that we kind of have two opposite sides. So, Well, those are great questions. Let me see if I can respond. Yes, I'm very familiar with the controversy with David Barton, the president and founder of Wall Builders Ministries, and uh, a book that he recently wrote on uh, the life of Jefferson. And there are some people, even evangelicals, who have disputed some of the things that he said about Thomas Jefferson. Um, the challenge to those people who have disputed some of the things that Barton wrote uh, is an issue of timing, because you can read about different men founders in our nation at different times in their life where their theology is not the same. For instance, uh, when I was a student at Boston College and we were studying American history, uh, Benjamin Franklin was written off as a deist. And they would make some quotations on Franklin's life that, yeah, if this is what he said, then this is definitely deist theology. The problem is, is uh, Franklin wasn't always the same in his theology. Uh, His theology began to change. There was a very famous evangelist, kind of the Billy Graham of his day. His name was George Whitfield. And George Whitfield, on a number of occasions, witnessed to Benjamin Franklin. In fact, there's a very famous letter that remains to this day uh, from Whitfield to Franklin on the necessity of his being born again. Um... And whether he was ever truly born again is, you know, I I don't think anyone knows for sure. We'll find out when we get to heaven whether he's there or not. But his theology definitely changed. Like at the Constitutional Convention late in his life in 1776, um, he says, listen, a sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from God's providential care. And if a bird can't fall to the ground apart from God's notice— then don't you think that we should go to God in prayer and ask him for his help because, you know, he cares about what we're doing here in this place. That came from Franklin, and the quotation he makes is not the quotation of a deist. So people have been all over David Barton, and some people quickly jumped on his ship, uh, but I don't think David Barton was wrong. I I think he's a, a scholar par excellence, and he has said some things from original sources that, some people have brushed off as not being faithful. And you mentioned Thomas Nelson as being a conservative publisher. They're not anymore. Thomas Nelson now produces a mixed bag of literature. So it used to be a time when, you know, you could go to something on Thomas Nelson Press and embrace it. Well, you know, Thomas Nelson, uh, 10 years ago, uh, published a book called Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell who's a leader in the emergent church, and in the book he denies the virgin birth. Why do they print it? Because it sells. What sells? What's going to make money for me as a publisher? That's all that matters to people today. There's very few publishers that are still faithful. There's a few, like Moody Press and some others, but very few that are really truly faithful to a set of theological convictions. So now the CEO of Thomas Nelson isn't even a believer. He's not a born-again Christian, and it's been bought by a secular uh, organization, and it's a subset of that organization, and they're saying, well, we want to uh, retain its Christian distinctives. Why? Because evangelicals still buy books more than most folks, and so they don't want to lose that opportunity. 
but um, they're not being driven by biblical principles any longer. And so I think they, I think they did David Barton in unfairly. Uh, were we a Christian nation? Well, depends what you mean by Christian nation at our founding. Were all the founders born again Christians? No, were a lot of them, a ton of them were. Look at the signers of the Declaration of Independence. A bunch of them were pastors. Some of them, many of them had gone to seminary. Um, some argue that as many as 48 out of, the, uh, out of all the signers were definitely born again Christians. Again, we might debate that, but a high percentage of those men who were involved in the founding of our nation were committed Christians. And, you know, many of the principles that we have as a nation are based on God's word. The whole idea of three branches of government comes from the book of Isaiah. Um, the idea of a, of a judicial system uh, and the way it functions uh, comes out of the book of Exodus. I mean, there's so many things in our nation that are rooted in God's principles and in God's word. Uh, my, my son, Jameson, uh, he, to me, he's like a mini David Barton, and he really knows his American history up one side, down the other. He's had an interest in it since he's been about six years old. He started when I think he was six or seven, and we gave him a book on the presidents. He knows every president, can name every single one. He can name their vice presidents. He can tell you what party they were in. Uh, how long they reigned, when they died, all kinds of quirky things about them. But I was uh, up there in the rotunda uh, of uh, <clears throat> in Washington, D.C., where our Senate and House meets, and he was giving a tour. And uh, as he walked through all the different paintings, it was amazing to see just with the paintings that hang in the rotunda uh, to see our historical Christian heritage. You know, you walk up even monuments like the Washington Monument, there's scripture posted all the way up the walls. At the top, there's a metal cap that says, praise be to God. You go into the Library of Congress and there's scripture all over the walls. Um, Our country has a rich Christian heritage. Now, are we still a Christian nation? Are we still rooted in Christian values? No, we're not. We're post-Christian. Now, I don't think we should abandon that just because we have a president and vice president that are engaged in wicked things like homosexual marriage and advocating such things and advocating many things that are contrary to God's word. We should pray for them, whether you're a Republican or Democrat or an independent or a Tea Partyist or whatever else you can think of. It doesn't change the fact that if you know Christ, you are commanded to pray for our leaders. All of us are, and we need to remember these men. They're lost, so that's what we get from lost people. And the more the society corrupts and goes down, the more you're going to see that expressed amongst lost people. When we were more Christianized as a nation, though we had many senators and congressmen and presidents who weren't born again, their values were influenced by the, a strong church. And that's what the church does. It acts as salt that preserves righteousness. It acts as light that dispels darkness. So take homosexuality, for instance. It was illegal in all 50 states. There were laws written against it. But as we've drifted away from God, now we write laws in favor of it. 
So our president comes out last week saying, well, you know, I'm in favor of the Boy Scouts having homosexual leaders. God help us. Um, my, there goes a great institution. They make their decision on Wednesday. I hope and I prayed for some of the leaders there that they'll do what's right, that they'll ignore what the president of the United States is advocating. Uh, you're going to have a lot of boys who are going to be sodomized. It's going to happen. You're going to have a lot of girls who are going to be um, in the Girl Scouts. They already are. It's a feminist organization. I mean, do you really know what your daughters are learning in the Girl Scouts? It's a feminist organization, and it's rippled with uh, lesbians who give leadership to it. And if you want that in the Boy Scouts, too, it's just, it's, it's just unbelievable. So that's where we are in our day, and that's why we as Christians need to first and foremost preach the gospel because the only way to change a nation is to change the individuals within that nation. And the only way to change individuals in the nation is through the preaching of the gospel. Because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And though not everyone will be saved, if there's more people who are saved, and so think about even the opening question today from a lady from Texas saying, well, you know, I meet all these born-again Christians who sleep with their boyfriends, but they say it's okay, and they say they're born-again evangelical Christians. That's the day that we live in. When you live in the mush theology of a Joel Olstein in, in people like that, I mean, that kind of stuff produces nothing, and it doesn't produce life change. And so we need, one, Christians to share the gospel. So we can dump on America all we want, but if you're listening to me today and you haven't attempted, I didn't say you were successful, but attempted to share the gospel with someone, then you've got no room to speak. And if you're a pastor and you're not preparing to preach the word, and you're going to have to say no to a lot of people, and you're going to make some people upset over things that they expect you to do as a pastor, but you will not be able to do it if you're going to be faithful to God's word. Um, It takes time to prepare, and sometimes it takes longer than you think. And it's hard work, but that's the way a pastor, among other things, is to show his love for Jesus Christ by feeding God's people. So if enough people get saved and start growing and maturing, then this nation could indeed turn around. It really could truly turn around. Um, And the only hope is not in the White House, it's in the church house, it's in the body of Christ. That's the only hope for America. We are decaying so fast and so furiously. The only hope is for Christians to wake up out of their sleep, out of their slumber, to use Paul's words, and to begin to shine as bright lights. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-924. 7980 or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener uh, would uh, like to know if you've heard about the book The Harbinger and is it a book for Christians? I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think it's a, it's a good book by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, it, you know, if you want, there's some articles that. Um, if you want us to send them to you, I'd be happy to. Uh, I was just trying to look one up for you here real fast so that maybe I can um, just direct you to a website. But 
the book is not healthy. Uh, there's a lot of error in it, and there's truth in it, and that's what makes it attractive to people. It's kind of like another book that came up, The Shack, or uh, The Shack was in and of itself um, a whole um, had a whole set of issues um, that went against biblical doctrine. It wasn't like Da Vinci Code that was, you know, um, just out and out attacking the Word of God. Books like The Shack and The Harbinger are more like angels of light in which they present themselves as Christian, but they are not. So um, someone asked recently, they wanted to have a Bible study, and I said, look, it's a free country. You can do whatever you want. But um, in our church, we're not going to sanction a Bible study if they're using the book, The Harbinger. There's just so much error out there. So this is what I would just encourage you to do, because I could spend an hour on this. Just Google The Harbinger and its theology. It's going to bring up a dozen articles. It will, most of them that have done an evaluation will quote page numbers. You can read paragraphs in context. You can see how it goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. And that's, that's where I would, I would start. But let's go to the next right. question because we've got so many others. That... We do. We do. Um, recently, a uh, listener writes, I was introduced to a prophetic prayer team through a local Christian ministry. This group prayed with and for me and prophesied. I'm aware of Romans and the spiritual gift of prophecy, uh, prophesying. I am a new Christian and have mixed feelings about it. Where do you draw the line between spiritual gifts and mysticism? Do people really have that gift? Do they really hear God speak to them? Thank you for your time and your ministry. That's well, a great question, and maybe it's an opportunity for me to give a commercial. I was going to say it sounded like, you know, a, yeah. a good it, yeah, that that would be a great radio spot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for uh, for our, our time uh, in God's Word on Wednesday. Last week, we just began a brand new series. We've just cracked the door. We'll be here for at least 10 weeks, um, and it's on the subject of spiritual gifts, uh, not just on finding your spiritual gift, but the development and the implement, implementation of your spiritual gift. Some people know what their spiritual gift is. Uh, is or their spiritual gifts are, but they're not being the best stewards or they're not really sure how do they develop and see a mature expression of their spiritual gifts. So the whole thing deals with that. Um, Prophesying, there are really kind of two dimensions to it. Like the office of prophecy, which is to be distinguished from the gift, and we talked about the difference between office and gift last week, like the office of pastor-teacher in the gift of pastor-teacher, and the two are distinct. So like a woman can't serve in the office of pastor-teacher. That is an office restricted only for men, to men. Uh, but a woman might have the gift of pastor-teacher that she would use in teaching other women and in helping to care for them and shepherd them. Uh, so there's a distinction. And there's the office of prophecy in the Old Testament that had basically two dimensions to it. One was forth-telling and the other was forth-telling. The foretelling dimension was predictive. A prophet would give prophecy. And to authenticate that his long-term prophecy was legitimate, as Deuteronomy 18 spells out when Moses gave the the law, he said you will know whether you can trust their long-range prophecy if they are able to give short-range prophecies that are verifiably true. And so that's what the prophets did of the Old Testament. You will see there are short-range prophecies, 
And you'll see their long-range prophecies. So you have a man like Isaiah who predicts that there's going to be a king named Cyrus, and he tells us what Cyrus is going to do, and Cyrus isn't even born yet. And Cyrus does exactly what the prophet Isaiah says he will do. So they're not broad uh, prophecies. They're of high specificity. Uh, They're not the kind of thing that you would read in a horoscope, not that I'm advocating anyone here read a horoscope that's evil but the things that they write about are so broad that it could apply to just about anything we're not talking about that we're not talking about the prophecies of Nostradamus that are so broad they can apply to a million situations we're talking about real prophecy and only God can foretell the future so this was important in the Old Testament era to distinguish a false prophet from a true prophet. And of course, God tells us that there is also the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy initially had a two-pronged effect. There was a sense of revelation in that a man or even a woman could receive directly from God a word of prophecy. This is why women were allowed to prophesy in the assembly because God could literally speak through a woman, just like today a woman could read Scripture in church. That's not in violation of God's Word. She could read a passage of Scripture. Now, she's not allowed to teach or exercise authority over men, but she could read Scripture. And God sometimes in a service would, through a man, through a woman, give a direct word of revelation. And, of course, everything was to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three prophets. God gave that principle in terms of truth always being substantiated by two or three witnesses. But then there was a a forth-telling dimension. And so the prophets in the Old Testament would not only predict what would happen and what God said, but then they would recite it over and over and over again and apply it to the people in terms of what the people should do and how they should behave. Now, some would just say the gift of prophecy doesn't even exist anymore because by definition, they would see, since there is no new revelation being given, that therefore you can't say it's in existence. But if you define prophecy just in its foretelling dimension, where a man takes the word of God that has been given and he preaches it, to a congregation or a woman to other women, then there might be an expression of that even in our day. So we'll be looking at this on our Wednesday night series. Uh, There are 20 gifts that are listed in the New Testament. uh, And we'll actually start looking and analyzing some of these gifts beginning Wednesday night. So I would encourage you to come if you're local or if you're listening in another part of the country to listen online the um, messages are, can either be streamed uh, through the internet, and in just a few weeks we'll be able to live stream those, or you can download them into your computer or iPod or however you want to listen to them. Hmm. All right. Well, that actually answers the next question from uh, Craig in Manchester, New Hampshire. He writes, thank you for your ministry. Um, it touches my spirit. I have been introduced to it through WDER broadcasts in Derry, New Hampshire. Might there be some time in the future when you will offer your service real-time on Sundays? I'm an active member in the Fellowship of AA for some time and am seeking a deeper walk with Christ. 
Well, we, we hope to have that actually accomplished in just the next two or three weeks. So Rick, uh, who's sitting here next to me, uh, along with a couple of other uh, men on our staff, are in the process of unfolding that. So what do you think, a couple weeks, Rick? Yeah, we're actually, we've got everything in place right now. Uh, we will do a couple of weeks of testing um, just to make sure we don't have any hiccups, and then we'll go live probably uh, yeah. um, mid-February. So we hope uh, that will be of benefit, and certainly will be benefit beneficial to new campuses that we want to start and we're hoping to start one in the Bluffton Hilton Head area if you're listening. We have a lot of families every week that drive from Hilton Head and Bluffton to attend church and and many will continue to do that but some want a place uh, just closer. So we're going to have live music and at the time of the teaching uh, portion of the service uh, will go directly to the Buford campus and they will be able to live stream. So the technology has come a long way, and a lot of exciting opportunities are happening. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, you can go to the Community Bible Church website, and there's a form that you can fill out if you'd like to be kept abreast of uh, information as it unfolds. All right. Ryan from Cullowee, North Carolina, writes, I heard I can request a copy of the handout on spiritual gifts, more specifically the gift of tongues. Uh, can I receive this handout to help me understand this better? Yes, you can. And uh, that's this, uh, the signs and wonders handout. And again, I will be addressing this issue in our Wednesday night series, the sign gifts in the New Testament for our listed tongues, interpretation of tongues, healings, and miracles. So we'll be looking at each of those four gifts and uh, how they functioned in the first century and whether or not they're functioning today in the same way. And uh, so there is a handout and very often people who are listening uh, to the Bible line have requested that. And all they need to do is uh, call the church or hit our website with their email address and then we'll send it directly to you as an attachment. So we'll be happy to do that for Ryan. Where's Cullowee, North Carolina? I'm not exactly sure. I'll have to look it up. That's uh, all right. All right, our, well, let's go to our next question. All right, our next is actually not a question, just a comment, but I wanted to say it just so I could pronounce the city from where they hail. Dennis from Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. All right. Right, so we visited after Christmas, and we're very impressed. I am in a prison Bible study, and we are studying Can You Lose Your Salvation? And, of course, you can't. Uh, the Bible teaches that when we're saved, we are eternally secure. So um, hopefully that's what you're teaching in that prison ministry. I hope so. Uh, so. But if you need help on that and we can be of service to you, please let us know. We have a whole handout on that that we use. All right. And finally, um, actually, a couple I more think, questions. Uh, we'll go to this one because I think All we right. can get this one done in the four minutes we have left. Uh, Jeff from Savannah would like to know, could you explain the Netzarim faith and how it juxtaposes with the biblical Christianity we serve? I think you mean the Nazarene faith. Yeah, I looked it up, yeah. and uh, they're, I guess, synonymous. Yeah, so um, uh, the Nazarene faith, uh, it's a denomination, not just in America, but other parts of the world. I think they have a couple million members, about a half a million here in the States, uh, they came out of the whole Pentecostal movement, so their theology is, for the most part, Arminian. So, among other things, one of their distinctives would be um, that you can lose your salvation. 
Uh, I don't believe that, uh, but for the most part, Pentecostals and the Assemblies movements and Nazarene and and even the Episcopal Church uh, generally teach that. There is exceptions. There are local assemblies that don't embrace that. But historically, uh, they were Arminian in their theology, uh, denying the doctrine of eternal security, which I think creates problems because as a general rule, when people embrace that and think that way, that I could possibly lose my salvation, then what they usually end up hearing is, well, if I could do something to lose it, there must be something I need to do in order to keep it. And so when we have people who come from a Nazareth church, as a general rule, it's about a 50-50 chance that they even know Christ is their Savior. I'm just telling you what it's like, and I share my faith every single week. And uh, we meet people from all kinds of denominations and backgrounds. I wish it were different, but that's more and more true, not just of them, but of, you know, most major denominations in our day. Now, some denominations, if someone comes from a, say, a Methodist background in our day, and and Nazarenes are, you know, kind of the Wesleyan Methodist tradition, um, but today, most Methodists, for instance, are extremely liberal. Most don't even have the gospel, so the the percentage is going to be much higher, but churches that do have the gospel, and they do have the plan of salvation for the most part. There's, I've met some lost Nazarene pastors who didn't know Christ. But most of them I meet do know the Lord. Uh, there is other issues that they're contending with today, uh, issues of the role of women in the church and egalitarianism versus complementarianism. And uh, those are some issues that I was addressing even last Sunday in our series in Romans. And I have entire messages on that in our series from the pastoral epistles but for the most part, they, they have the gospel, but because of their Arminian view, many people, I think, are confused, and many people don't really understand salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So that's the, that's the challenge, and, um, but I thank God for any denomination or local church, whatever stripe they are, if they're preaching Christ Jesus and Him crucified, well, God bless them. We may differ on some things, but... Thank the Lord they are trying to win people to Jesus. And that's what's so important in the end. Well, we're out of time for today. Uh, Wish we had more time to address some of your questions, but God willing, we'll be back next week. Uh, This will be on the internet in just a couple of hours and you can listen to it or uh, send it to a friend if you want to hear it again. And you can go to wagp.net and click on the Bible line, and you'll find all the information that you need. God bless you. Have a great day.